Thank you for enhancing our frontal lobes tonight with that music. That music had uh, several characteristics that have actually been proven to enhance frontal lobe circulation and function. It had a beautiful melody and more than just one beautiful melody. How many melodies were there? There was actually two. There was one melody and another melody going on top of that one. It had beautiful consonant harmonies. Consonant harmonies means that there's not dissonance. The notes aren't too close together. And uh, that uh, consonant harmony part is very helpful. And it had a straight rhythm. Uh, That straight rhythm, it was uh, primarily the cello's responsibility uh, to keep that up. Uh, that uh, straight rhythm is also enhancing as opposed to the more popular syncopated rhythms that differentiate frontal lobe suppressant music from frontal lobe enhancing music. Now, the the syncopation would have the boom-cha, so uh, it'd be boom-cha, boom-cha, and that would be just repeated many times. And after 90 seconds of that, the frontal lobe begins to deteriorate and go down. And it not only affects you while you're listening to the music, but it affects you in eight adverse ways after the music is played. It actually makes you more rebellious. It causes more inner tension. It actually depresses your mood. Uh, And it also makes you more fatigued and uh, you don't have as much energy. Uh, Eight different adverse ways. And so a lot of times people are just concerned about the effects of the music while you're listening to it. If you're addicted to that music, you might actually feel um, energetic at the time it's being played. But far more important is the after effects of the music. And uh, the after effects are not very good. Another advantage of this music was it was reverential. There's an advantage if it's reverential and if it seems to uplift our thoughts into something um, grander and greater than ourselves. And uh, the music was doing that as well. Well, today I'm going to be talking about nutrition in the brain and uh, also to go into some of the science that has now shown us that Nutrition and nutrient supplementation is now part of mainstream psychiatry. It actually can be more powerful than even the effects of pharmaceutical agents without the risks. The number one class of drugs sold today in America are actually the antidepressant and anti-anxiety drugs. And uh, these drugs are affecting what we call the synapse. That first neuron up there is releasing a chemical that is taken up by the receptor neuron. And when that occurs, the electrical signal continues. And uh, this is a diagram kind of demonstrating uh, what's happening here. And I don't know if you'll be able to see my arrow or not. Can you? Yeah, you can see the arrow here. So this is serotonin in these vesicles here. It takes quite a bit uh, for the serotonin to be made. It has to have tryptophan in it first, but it's not just any tryptophan that you eat that gets into your brain. 
It has to have the right carrier to get across this blood-brain barrier because tryptophan is too large to get across it uh, on its own. Uh, this is why serotonin, of course, um, which was what tryptophan is making, uh, serotonin uh, is not something that we can give in a vein to help someone who's severely depressed. If it were, uh, it would be one of the most popular therapies for depression. Let's bring them in for some IV serotonin. But none of that serotonin actually crosses the blood-brain barrier because of those steel pipes. So that means we have to have our own manufacturing plant of serotonin in the brain. And even the tryptophan won't cross the blood-brain barrier until you have the right carrier and you have to have carbohydrates with it. It's an insulin-mediated mechanism. And then you have to have the ability to methylate well. So there's quite a bit going on there. And the final methyl group actually produces this 5-hydroxytryptamine, which actually is um, a serotonin. So it goes 5-hydroxytryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin. Then it gets stored in those vesicles there. And then when those vesicles get close and there's an electrical transmission, you can see that vesicle releasing that serotonin into the synapse. And then when it binds on, let me go back to my arrow here, when it binds on to the receptor, that's when the electrical signal occurs. And then the receptor releases it and it's vacuumed back up to be used again. It's, it's so tough to be able to make that serotonin that it's far better to vacuum it back up and save all of that energy and process. Those are called the reuptake channels. But if serotonin is not being made in proper amounts, or it's not being released in proper amounts, or there's not enough receptors down there, the pharmaceutical companies found out a way that they can increase serotonin activity in the brain. And the way to do that is to produce a drug that crosses the blood-brain barrier and blocks this reuptake channel. They're really called, they really should be called vacuum cleaner pluggers, but that wouldn't sound very good, wouldn't be a good marketing technique. And so they're instead called what? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. How does that help? Well, because if it's sometimes that serotonin is vacuumed back up before it has a chance to be on the receptor. And so if we block those reuptake channels, we have more serotonin in that synapse, and thus we can have more serotonin activity at least on the front side of the use of these drugs. But after we utilize these drugs for, say, nine months, a year, what do you think is going to happen? We're actually going to short the neuron even further of the serotonin problem it already had. And so this is why about nine months to a year later, you need higher doses, you need more medicines, and by the time a person comes to our program, they're normally on four or five different medicines, still severe depression. And essentially, the pharmaceutical industry has turned people with depression and anxiety into what we call psychiatric cripples. 
In other words, they're dependent on continuing to see the doctor for adjustments in their medicines and trying this medicine, changing them to that, instead of actually taking care of the underlying problem. The underlying problem is where we should focus in on, and if we can take care of that, we can start producing all of the benefits without the risks of the use of these drugs. Now, even short-term, there are risks of plugging those vacuum cleaners. One of the risks that comes across the board is an increase in impulsivity. We might improve the mood, but before the mood is improved, impulsivity worsens. And that's why all of these drugs have black box warnings on them. What are the black box warnings about? Suicide. So you're giving a patient who has severe depression who might be at risk for suicide. Depression is the number one cause of suicide. And now you're worsening their, worsening their impulsivity before you're improving their depression. And therefore, that first month that they're on the drug is particularly high. Now, after that first month, their improvement in mood balances it out pretty well. So it's about even at that point. But it does not decrease the risk of suicide. It also causes something else across the board. And a lot of people like this effect but it causes an I don't care attitude. Now the reason why some people like it is because they have crying spells and they're feeling like they're caring too much. And because of those crying spells, uh, they like the I don't care attitude because their crying dries up. But when the I don't care attitude occurs, Things happen in their life that they actually should be motivated to do something about, but the I don't care attitude prevails, and so they're actually less likely to change their behavior in positive ways because they've quit caring. And so this is why we need and why even the medical profession and the psychiatric profession tells us very clearly that medications are not the answer for these diseases. They might be a help short term, but they are not the answer. And it's not like we're looking for a drug that's going to be able to do all the benefits and none of the risks. In fact, if you find a drug like that, it's not actually going to be a drug. It's going to be one of God's natural agents that only has benefits and no risks, like we were talking about at the end of our last presentation. Humanity has a fascination on things that have some benefits but come with a hook and some risks. But they don't seem to be all that fascinated about things that can only help. <laughs> but yet there are actually more things that can only help than things that have risks, fortunately. <clears throat> and so let's go into taking care of the primary defect here. One of the primary defects can be not enough tryptophan in the diet. Tryptophan is not only converted to serotonin, it's also converted to what else? What is that going to help us with? Sleep, and it's also converted to niacin or vitamin B3. Serotonin is not only a mood elevator, but it also helps us to handle the nuisances of life without getting down. 
It helps us to not be agitated. It particularly helps with anxiety. And if you're having issues with agitation or anxiety or panic, you can almost be assured there's a serotonin problem, a problem with serotonin activity. The issue as far as the diet is concerned is it's the least abundant amino acid in the diet. And it is an essential amino acid. The conversion of tryptophan to 5-HTP is also inhibited by stress. So if you're not handling stress well, you're actually going to make less of it. Now, we do have some people that come to our programs, quite a few, actually, that have said, I'm only interested in the biochemistry expertise that you have. I know my brain needs fixed, and it needs fixed biochemically. I don't really want to have the counseling here because my problem is not needing counsel. My problem is my brain biochemistry. Well, here's the issue. If we can teach them cognitively how to handle their stress through counseling, we are going to augment their brain biochemistry because they'll be able to make more serotonin. So it's not just one or the other. This is why it has to come together. And this is also another thing that, it, that uh, it needs to be emphasized. If we fix their brain biochemistry, which eventually we can do, you know, this, uh, although they're coming for 10 days, some of this takes weeks to actually fix. We have to repeat blood work in six weeks and see where they're at and maybe tweak it again. But our whole goal is biochemical perfection in 20 weeks. If they get biochemical perfection in 20 weeks and have not changed their thought patterns when their biochemistry was imperfect, those thought channels are still like major highways in their brain. And so we have to actually do the counseling along with the brain biochemistry. The brain biochemistry makes the counseling a lot easier. It helps people be able to grasp the subject better, but they have to be repetitive and intentional in thinking true and accurate thoughts and blocking their irrational thoughts and then new pathways in the brain developed. And so it has to come with the cognitive behavioral therapy counseling to produce the optimum result. We also need to realize that mental illness began to occur in the angelic host despite their perfect brain biochemistry. Lucifer had perfect brain biochemistry, but he began to think thoughts that were just not true. And he began to focus on himself. And that self-centeredness, along with irrational, distorted thoughts, his first distortion was magnification slash minimization. He began to magnify himself. And he began to minimize the role of Christ and it was irrational, self-centered thinking that got us all into all of these problems. And by the way, he also did something that's very common as well. When people are thinking irrationally, he began to accuse others of thinking irrationally who were actually thinking rationally. <laughs> and he was actually accusing them of what was in his own heart. <laughs> 
We call that projection. And by the way, if you want to know what, what someone is struggling with in their own mind, see what they're accusing of the others of. Because often you'll be able to read their heart pretty well. <laughs> Back to this slide, though. Tryptophan is converted to 5-HTP, but it's inhibited by stress. It's also inhibited by what else? What's another name for insulin resistance? Diabetes. If you don't have diabetes and you have insulin resistance, what do you have? It's called prediabetes or metabolic syndrome. This is why we measure everyone in our program in regards to their um, metabolism and their, whether they have metabolic syndrome. It's very important for them to know whether they have that. If they have metabolic syndrome, what is it going to be even more important for them to do nutritionally and lifestyle-wise? They need to exercise. You need insulin every day, and if you have metabolic syndrome, you need exercise every day. This is the people that we're going to have exercise seven days a week, and at least one of those days be out in nature and doing trails and getting forest bathing, which will add to that. And we're going to be more particular about having them on a no-sugar, low-fat diet, uh, which will also help their brain chemistry. In fact, we've, in the diabetic world, they've started to rename diabetes diapression because it's a problem for them to be able to get enough tryptophan in the brain unless their insulin resistance is improved. Magnesium deficiency will also cause problems in this area. Vitamin B6 deficiency, lack of light, as well as the older you get, the less efficient you are in making serotonin. Don't despair those that are older, though. You know, back before, as I was growing up, um, and uh, I kind of dated myself earlier, but I grew up in the 60s, and I remember in the late 60s, uh, there was an individual down the street that began to suffer from major depression. Major depression wasn't all that common back then. And it wasn't even called that back then, at least in the lay terms. And I remember going to my parents and I saying, can you tell me what's going on with Mrs. McPherson? Something has changed. And they said, oh, yes, she's suffering from a midlife crisis. That was the term for major depression because it never occurred in younger individuals, or hardly ever. Uh, and uh, so it was called the midlife crisis. And now there's more depression in the elderly, far more than ever before, but there's even higher rates in younger individuals. The highest age group that we have coming to our program are those between the ages of 14 and 35. And uh, so if you come to a depression and anxiety recovery program, we take people of all ages, but you're going to see a predominance of the younger age groups um, that are there, uh, reflective of society as well in regards to those that are struggling the most with depression. But if you're doing everything right, you can actually make enough serotonin like a 25 or 30-year-old uh, in older age. By the way, we had an 86-year-old in our last program as well. We don't age discriminate and, uh, and not take the, uh, uh, the elderly there. 
And uh, that 86-year-old had a tremendous uh, positive result uh, as well. So tryptophan improves premenstrual dysphoria from ovulation to mid-cycle to the third day of menstruation. I should say ovulation is mid-cycle to the third day of menstruation. It improves depression and seasonal affective disorder. It has been shown to improve insomnia. By the way, the most common sleep disorder for those with depression and anxiety is called what? Insomnia is common, but it's not the most common. Insomnia is where you need to go to sleep, your head hits pillow, but you're not able to sleep. That can happen. Hypersomnia is also pretty common. We talked about that last night, where you're wanting to sleep all the time or sleeping too much, but still that's not the most common. The most common is called early morning awakening. This is when you're able to go to sleep, but you wake up too early and can't get back to sleep. And it's kind of frustrating, you know? You're waking up at 3 or 4 in the morning, and you're not supposed to be up until 6, and you're wondering, you know, you just have to lay there. Tomorrow morning, if that happens to you, you don't have to be frustrated. You come here at 5 a.m., and you get the first lecture. (laughs) And so... uh, If you have early morning awakening, take full advantage of it tomorrow, and uh, you'll be able to have uh, an additional blessing. (laughs) Obstructive sleep apnea. You know, actually, I think this is the first conference I've been to where they start their meetings at 5 a.m., but uh, (laughs) I think that's good. That's probably when I should be speaking, because that's going to be primarily your depressed and anxious group, maybe. I don't know. for those that can't sleep. Actually, not, not in this audience, actually, because the healthiest program to be on is early to bed, early to rise. Who was it? Someone was telling me here. Uh, I've heard about some of our Weimar students being here, because some of you know some of those Weimar students that are there. Oh, yeah, I, I know who it is. Uh, one of our, our great freshmen, she got into Ivy League schools and a lot of other places, And the Lord put on her heart just a few days before Weimar started that she should apply to Weimar. And she got accepted to Weimar and rejected all of her scholarships elsewhere, and she's on the Weimar campus. And I just heard today from relatives of hers that she is in bed early, and she is up every morning at 3.30 a.m. She's doing her devotions. She's going uh, exercising. Uh, she is studying in the morning, and she's excelling. She's a pre-med student, and so far having that 4.0. And so uh, it's not just the depressed and anxious people that would be up. So don't, don't think that we would mislabel you if you come to the meeting uh, tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. So uh, uh, obstructive sleep apnea also uh, is helped with this. What's the most common treatment for sleep apnea? The CPAP mask. What's, one of, what's the most effective treatment? It's weight loss for those that are overweight. Getting down to your lean body weight will totally eliminate sleep apnea. No need for CPAP masks in over 80% of individuals. But a lot of people are not aware that tryptophan also helps. If, we, if we're making enough serotonin, that can help. And also withdrawal from drugs. By the way, we are seeing a significant uptake in nicotine addiction in our program. 
You know, a few years ago, nicotine addiction was rare. We might have one patient per group that was withdrawing from nicotine. But it's a lot more than that now. The younger age groups have picked it up, and they picked up something more addictive than cigarette smoking. What's more addictive than cigarette smoking? Vaping. Yeah, vaping is highly addictive. You're getting higher doses in. It's really uh, tough to get over with. But uh, no matter if it's nicotine, no matter if it's opioids, no matter if it's benzos, if we're getting enough tryptophan into the system, the patient will be able to withdraw far quicker, and particularly with the hydrotherapy treatments. We had an individual that was a vapor. He was on opioids. He was also on another agent that is very similar to opioids, but you can try to get over the counter called Kratom, uh, and uh, also on benzos. And uh, he was on so much stuff that they had him do a consult with me beforehand so we could try to make sure it would only be a 10-day program. When you're on that much stuff, that's highly likely if you come that you're going to be on a 17- or a 24-day program and not just a 10-day program. But he followed my advice in weaning down. He wasn't weaned off all of this stuff yet, but I knew he wouldn't be able to get off completely. That would be very hard, and he had tried many times. He was just in his 30s. In that age group that I talked to you about, the most common age group that we have, uh, but he was married and he had kids and his wife was very concerned, uh, and rightly so, and he was very concerned as well. He had also been on antidepressants to try to fix his brain biochemistry. The last antidepressant he was on caused his weight gain and he had gained 58 pounds in four months and came to us uh, morbidly obese as well. Uh, and so all of this going on, and uh, he was amazed. Yes, he had withdrawal, but after three days, it was amazing to him as well. I feel so good. By one week, he said, I actually feel a lot better now than I did ever taking these drugs. And I thought he was going a little too fast. You know, at the same time... He did this himself. He got off the most difficult to withdraw antidepressant. He had stopped the one that caused all the weight gain, mirtazapine. He was on a low dose of that. That one's a little easier to get off of, but he had stopped Cymbalta. Now, just look up Cymbalta withdrawal. I said, I don't think you want to do this. He says, yes, I do. <laughs> he says, I'm here. I want all of this, off all this stuff. I know you can manage me. You know, Please let me off all of this stuff. And in 10 days, what a tremendous transformation. And he also won the Biggest Loser Award. He lost 19 pounds in the program, but his face was aglow, and he was ready in 10 days for discharge. And uh, what a tremendous example. He said, I didn't know it could be so easy, partly due to the fact of the, what we're doing with the biochemistry to make this withdrawal um, a lot easier. And of course, a, 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 the other big success is the contrast hydrotherapy, which he didn't like at first, but then he learned to love. So foods rich in tryptophan. When I was in medical school, I was told that whole milk was not a bad source of tryptophan, and it is a good source, 46 milligrams per 100 grams, but there are higher sources, black-eyed peas, black walnuts, almonds, Sesame seeds are an excellent source. Gluten. If you are, don't have celiac disease, gluten is actually healthy. 
It's, one, it's a high source of glutamine, which is a neuroinhibitory uh, uh, neurotransmitter that can help us with GABA aminobutyric acid. And it also helps us to make more serotonin. Uh, and so 96% of the public actually can benefit from gluten. Pumpkin seeds, a very excellent source, and the highest source is actually good old-fashioned tofu. But it's not just the milligrams per 100 grams. We have to compare it with two other things, the amount of carbs that are with it, as well as the competition. Tryptophan has five competitors. This is one of the reasons why you don't want it. Tryptophan is a building block of protein, but you do not want to eat high-protein food to get more tryptophan because you will end up eating more of those five competitors than you will tryptophan, and you're going to actually lower your tryptophan intake into the brain. By the way, they tried this with turkey. Turkey is a pretty good source of tryptophan, but none of the tryptophan from turkey ends up in the brain. And you actually lower your brain tryptophan uptake because turkey has more of the competitors than it does tryptophan. And so we can actually trace this and see this. So you actually want to lower your protein intake, raise your carbohydrate intake, and get food that has more of the, um, less of the five amino acids that compete with it, which are called the large neutral amino acids. They're abbreviated in the medical literature, the LNAA. So you see these first two there. Sorry about the small writing. It didn't transfer over there. But the top one is milk, and the second one is salmon. 40% of tryptophan, but 60% of the competition. Which one do you think would get more tryptophan into the brain, milk or salmon? I hear salmon. I hear the same because they're the same ratio. Actually, it's milk. That's why the medical school was saying milk is a pretty good source of tryptophan. They were talking about the brain as well. Why would you get more tryptophan into the brain from milk? Because there are carbs in milk. But in salmon, high in fat, high in protein, but it's a carbohydrate deficient food. So if you have the same ratios, you need to choose a food that comes with the carbs, like milk. Now, a little better ratios are beef, chicken, and brown rice. Out of those, which one would you get more tryptophan into the brain? Brown rice. Okay, you got it. Black-eyed peas, higher yet. Soybeans, higher yet. Walnuts, higher yet. Pumpkin seeds are in the top four. Tofu is in the top three, but not the top food. And I'm sorry, we're not going to see the top food on here. We're going to see the number two food. The number two food in getting tryptophan into the brain is a very special food that is in the most holy place. Almonds are, uh, are actually the American Medical Association because it's high in vitamin E, it has omega-3, a lot of positive things in almonds. Uh, they called it the perfect nut. And that's good news, because that means you are not uh, <laughs> that. Uh, but uh, there's one food higher than almonds, and that is, and I'm sorry it doesn't show up on the screen here, 
but it's sesame seeds. Sesame seeds, 80% of the tryptophan. And it's one of the reasons why we recommend hummus, why we uh, recommend even tahini. Some of our patients, it's the first time they try tahini is at our program. And, and when they first try it, they say, ah, no, too bitter. But what we've noticed is if they continue to try it, after their third time, they can't get enough of it. That bitterness goes away, and it's like, wow, this is actually good. Uh, they start to enjoy it. The taste buds uh, pick up uh, pretty quick, and, of course, they enjoy some of the effects of being able to make more serotonin in the brain. Stress-prone subjects, high-carb, low-protein food prevents a deterioration of mood and performance under uncontrollable laboratory stress conditions. Stress-prone subjects have a higher risk of brain serotonin deficiency, and in such subjects, higher natural carbohydrates increase personal control. This is why we don't want these totally ketotic diets that have become so popular today, where they're low in carbs or no carbs. These are not sustainable over the long haul. You have to have those carbs eventually to be able to make enough of those neurotransmitters. Now, ketosis is good if it's in the evening. Ketosis actually improves brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It improves neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity for the brain to change. And how do you get ketosis in the evening? It's called the no-supper plan. And so the breakfast and lunch, but not eating supper. Now, not all of our patients can do that. Um, because they'll short themselves in calories due to GI issues, etc. But for the patients who can do it, there is an advantage um, to that. And um, uh, our gentleman that lost his 18 pounds, uh, you can be assured he was on the no supper plan uh, as well. And it does really help uh, augment weight loss as well. Tyrosine is another important amino acid. It's incorporated into proteins of all life forms and is a precursor for the synthesis of thyroxin. What is thyroxin? Thyroid hormone. Does that help you with mental health? Yes, it does. It helps give you more energy. It helps your weight to be more controlled. It gives you more endurance. And a lot of people wonder when they're starting to get a little low in thyroid, is there anything naturally they can do? Yes. More tyrosine, that's what we make it out of. Tyrosine plus iodine actually equals thyroxine. Melanin and kephalins. And two neurotransmitters are made from tyrosine. What are those? <coughs> dopamine and norepinephrine. Now, I told you what serotonin helps you with. What does dopamine help you with? Dopamine, it does help you with mood some, but it helps you with something else more so. We talked about this being the fifth factor of emotional intelligence today, for those that you remember. Motivation, yes, somebody was remembering those five forms. And so dopamine provides healthy motivation. So when we see apathy, apathy is when you wake up in the morning and you're not all that interested in the day. You get up out of a sense of duty and responsibility, but not interest. That's a dopamine problem. Or if things that used to be pleasurable are no longer pleasurable for you, that's a dopamine problem. And 
it could mean a tyrosine problem, getting enough tyrosine into the brain. And then tyrosine not only turns into dopamine, it also turns into what? Norepinephrine. Now, norepinephrine, what is that going to help you with? It's going to help you with energy. This is the one that will help you with fatigue. It'll also help you with? It, it can help you with focus as well. If you have a concentration problem, it may be too low in norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is kind of a cousin of adrenaline. Uh, and adrenaline, if you know a lion were to walk into this room, uh, you would want to have some adrenaline. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you would be able to focus very well in getting out of this room. Uh, and, uh, and norepinephrine is to help provide that focus for more everyday types of activities instead of just lions. Uh, tyrosine is a potent antioxidant, and it also stimulates growth hormone production, which is anabolic. And it's of therapeutic benefit in improving not only depression, but it improves high blood pressure. Now, I, I mentioned this also to contrast it with what the pharmaceutical industry does to try to get you to have more norepinephrine activity in the brain. If there's a shortage of norepinephrine, doctors are trying to figure out which drug to place you on. If you have a fatigue problem or a focus problem, they're more likely, instead of serotonin, if those are your primary issues, they're more likely to put you on an SNRI. What does the N stand for? Selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So it's blocking those norepinephrine channels. And by blocking those norepinephrine channels, it has a side effect well known. It increases the blood pressure. And so hypertension, it can increase your risk of stroke and other issues. But interestingly, when we take care of the primary defect, if you're not getting enough norepinephrine in the synapse, not only does the energy improve and the focus improve, but the blood pressure, if it's high, actually goes down. It's kind of amazing. When we do things God's way, it seems like everything we measure seems to improve and nothing seems to worsen. It's also a therapeutic benefit in improving stress, cognitive function, memory, Parkinson's disease, PKU, and narcolepsy. Looking around the room to see if we have any narcolepsy here. Uh, what is narcolepsy? This is when you're wanting to stay awake, but you can't. <laughs> you're just nodding off and sleeping. And uh, tyrosine can help with this. Uh, we've had some pretty dramatic stories of, of L-tyrosine uh, helping people to stay awake, even at night. Uh, you know, once our program is a caffeine-free free program, we had an individual uh, come through our program who had high anxiety. And uh, when he was getting ready to go home, he says, you know, I've been caffeine-free for 10 days, and I feel a lot better without it, but I'm going to need it back again because of my job. Because at 5 o'clock in the evening, I'll get a call that I have to drive all night to Albuquerque, New Mexico from Texas to deliver an oil part because they ran out of the parts and there's a hundred men waiting to work there the next day and I've got to drive all night and I can't do it without caffeine. I told them, once you're caffeine free for 14 days, you can by getting enough tyrosine. 
and I'll tell you what I told him to do that works like a charm, but let's go on with this. Those given tyrosine had significantly reduced headache, stress, fatigue, muscle aches, and sleepiness compared to controls. Improvements were noted in mood, mental states, happiness, mental clarity, hostility, and tension. Cognitive tests improved, math skills, coding map compass, pattern recognition in the tyrosine group, and feelings of vigor and improvements in blood pressure occur. Different foods are higher in tyrosine, however. The greens are pretty good in it, mustard greens, lamb's quarters, tomatoes are a good source. Tofu is a moderate source, but actually green soybeans are even higher. What do we call green soybeans? Edamame. Egg has some, almonds have more, oats have even more, sunflower seeds more, peanuts are an excellent source, and notice pumpkin and squash seeds top the list as far as concentrated sources of tyrosine. But tyrosine also has competitors. Not as many as tryptophan, there are three large competitors and if you notice here, flax and chia also will give us tyrosine into the brain. Tofu, pumpkin seeds, soybeans will actually get more in your brain than pumpkin seeds. Spirulina will get more as well, or seaweed. And watermelon is up there near the top of the list, number two. And mustard greens are high. Now, this, is a, this also comes with a warning. Tyrosine is that energy giver. So... You don't want to have your watermelon as your evening meal because you'll want to stay up and not go to bed. You'll be pretty alert because of that tyrosine. So that's exactly what I told the trucker when he says, what do I do? I said, I'll give you two choices, watermelon or mustard greens. <laughs> what do you think he chose? <laughs> he chose watermelon. By the way, I wouldn't have given him that choice if he was a diabetic. That's why we have to look at the metabolic syndrome, it would have only been mustard greens. But the watermelon works like a charm. He says it doesn't, you know, it keeps me awake, but it doesn't give me that bad wired feeling with caffeine. And I, it just feels like it's daytime and it's just fine and I can drive all night long and I don't get tired and I like it far better than what caffeine used to do for me. So the ironic conclusion, don't chow down on high-protein sources to boost either tyrosine or tryptophan. We want to emphasize carbohydrate-rich plant sources of these nutrients. Another issue that can lead to depression and anxiety is low folate levels. In fact, such depression has been shown to be unresponsive to medications. And the U.S. government has targeted folate as being undersupplied in a large percentage of Americans. They recommend 400 micrograms a day to prevent neural tube defects and to make sure you don't get macrocytic anemia and other problems that folate deficiency can cause. But for brain health, we actually need more than 400 micrograms. We need 1,000 micrograms. And the typical American on the typical American diet is trying to get their folate from steak. That's a double serving of steak, 16 micrograms. If you were to try to get 1,000 micrograms from steak, you would probably die that day uh, from, <laughs> from having to eat such a huge amount of steak. Parsnips, we'll have more. Pineapple juice, more. Orange juice, even more. Peanuts are a good source. 
And your greens are a pretty good source here. Mustard greens again, 105. Spinach, 109. Navy beans, 255. Okra, 269 micrograms. Do you guys eat okra here in Virginia? Some say no. Some say no and some say yes. So uh, I know in Oklahoma it was okay raw there and there was plenty of it. But in California, people don't know what okra is out there. Notice that one cup of lentils, 831 micrograms, almost as much as you need in that one cup of lentils. No wonder Esau was willing to sell his birthright uh, for this. And the highest source, black-eyed peas, just one cup of black-eyed peas. We get our black-eyed peas from an organic farmer right there in the Sacramento Valley, the best black-eyed peas you'll eat, and, and it works like a charm in depression and anxiety recovery. And then another issue with depression is atherosclerosis causing heart disease or many strokes, which is so common today. Patients with major depression tend to have significantly higher cholesterol levels in healthy adults. Depressed patients with elevated cholesterol have a poorer prognosis for treatment response. And lowering cholesterol levels, if they're high, has been shown to improve depression and mood and improve what else? Impulsivity, which is what we want to improve if someone's with depression. We don't want them to have impulsivity because suicide is often an impulsive act. And once again, this is a win-win by just lowering the cholesterol. So this is why we measure everyone's cholesterol and their LDL cholesterol when they come to our program. How much cholesterol do fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables have? If it's a plant or if it comes from a plant, it doesn't have cholesterol. Skim milk, 4 milligrams. 2% milk, 18. Whole milk, 33. Egg whites are the only animal product exception rule. No cholesterol in egg whites. Mayonnaise, 8. Ice cream, 29. Butter, 31. But notice the egg yolk. 213 milligrams of cholesterol. Loaded. A lot of people are confused about this. They think tuna was part of the plant kingdom and had no cholesterol. (laughs) But tuna does have a liver. It is an animal. (laughs) Uh, and it does have cholesterol. Clams, 57. Crab, 64. They're also confused about this. They think if they scrape the fat and the skin off their chicken, they've got cholesterol-free chicken. But it has 73 milligrams. Even with the skin and the fat taken off of it, pork, 76. Beef, 80. And if they're like most people that don't scrape the fat and the skin off, Chicken actually has more cholesterol than red meat. And then a lot of people think, well, the solution is seafood. Oyster, 84 milligrams. Sardines, 120 milligrams. One three-ounce serving of shrimp. Sorry, that should have been moved over. That is 165 milligrams of cholesterol. Kidney, 329, so when you get into organ meats, very loaded. Liver, 410. Caviar, 500. And if you see anyone feasting on beef brains, you have to wonder about their intentions. 
one three ounce serving, 1,697 milligrams of cholesterol. The more cholesterol in our diet, the higher our blood cholesterol gets, but there's an additional problem with the cholesterol in our diet versus what our own livers make. By the way, sometimes you'll hear this confusing gobbledygook where people will say, but your body needs cholesterol. It's gonna be a problem being on a plant-based diet. Well, in a way they're right. Our body needs cholesterol, but we don't need any in our diet. Why is that? Because our livers make plenty. <laughs> and we can actually train our livers to make more by, by what we're eating, which is not a good thing. We don't wanna make more than we need. But the problem with cholesterol in the diet, Dr. Taylor showed in particular, was that the oxidized cholesterol is more damaging. And this was found out by studying a group of mothers in Louisiana. Actually, I'll tell you about that study next. First, I'll tell you about how Taylor uh, discovered this. It was actually by having medical students. This is why we always like to have students with us. The medical students up there in New York, where he's at, in Long Island, have to actually do a study that nobody else has done. It doesn't need to be good enough to be published, but they need to contribute something to science before they leave so they know how studies are done and, and respect the scientific method and all of that. And so uh, they looked up in the medical literature and they had found that no one had ever fed pure cholesterol to rabbits and monkeys. And so they thought, aha, nobody's done this. Let's try it and let's see what happens. So they got it approved, but then they had to go to the cholesterol researcher because they didn't know how to find pure cholesterol. And he said, yeah, I've got a bunch of it. It's over there in that bucket. It's been there a long time, but it's pure cholesterol. Go ahead and use it. So they fed pure cholesterol to rabbits and monkeys, and within a few weeks, they all began to have heart attacks and strokes. <clears throat> and they were done with their study. They, they showed the data. They were out of there. They had completed it. But Dr. Taylor said, cholesterol's bad, but it shouldn't have been that bad. Just a few weeks, these poor rabbits and monkeys. And then he thought about what he had given them. It had been in that bucket for a while, but the lid had also been off. And it had been exposed to the air. So he thought, let's give pure cholesterol to rabbits and monkeys and see what happens. If it's pure cholesterol, it's a clear, waxy substance. It's not um, color. It doesn't have that um, dark color to it. And so they fed pure cholesterol, and none of those monkeys and rabbits developed any atherosclerosis, clean vessels. So that's when he realized, okay, the problem is oxidized cholesterol. And so he realized people don't just eat cholesterol, whether it's non-oxidized or not, they're eating food. And so he gave these monkeys this one food and 24 hours later, he would count the dead cells in their aorta to see which foods were the most toxic cholesterol to the arteries. He found out the most harmful cholesterol to arteries are the cholesterol that's found in what? Custards. What are custards? Milk, eggs, and what else? Sugar. When we mix cholesterol up in a sugar environment, we're going to heavily oxidize it. And what's the most commonly consumed custard in America? Good old-fashioned ice cream. And this is why it's far better 
to take frozen bananas and put them through a champion juicer. There's no cholesterol there. You don't have to worry about oxidizing it. You can do tofruity. One of our board members produces 32 flavors, one more of Baskin Robbins, of an ice cream that is made out of oats. That's right. Oats can be very creamy. The problem is he couldn't call it ice cream. And on the taste test, it actually got, got rated higher in the street than ice cream as far as people's enjoyment of it with far less sugar and no oxidized cholesterol. And so he finally came up with the name. You can find it at Whole Foods. It's called We Can't Say It's Ice Cream. <laughs> Second most damaging, pancake mix. What are pancakes made out of? Yeah, and the pancake mix is going to be powdered eggs and powdered flour, so you're heavily oxidizing it. It was actually Aunt Jemima's pancake mix that he used. Number three, Parmesan cheese. You're powdering up the cholesterol by, by grinding it up, and it was tied with lard as being the third most damaging cholesterol. But, you know, although Dr. Taylor produced the scientific evidence, some Adventists knew about this before Taylor because they had read that book, Ministry of Healing. Notice this, especially harmful are the what? Custards and puddings in which milk, eggs, and sugar are the chief ingredients. The free use of milk and sugar together should be what? Avoided. So the Louisiana study. Anyone want to guess why they were studying infants and mothers in Louisiana? Is Louisiana known for their healthy food or their unhealthy food? It's actually known as the most unhealthy food in the nation, <laughs> the Cajun food. And some mothers, the way they eat, they have higher cholesterol in their human breast milk than cows have in their milk. And so they're thinking with these mothers eating this terrible fast food at McDonald's and all these places and their high cholesterol, that might be the reason why our Louisiana infants are developing atherosclerotic streaks. They would actually see in infants the, the streaks of atherosclerosis starting. Some of the infants had it, and other infants did not. And they looked at the differences in the milk consumption of these infants. Which infants do you think had the atherosclerotic streaks? Those drinking cow's milk? or the human breast milk from the Louisiana mothers? You would think it was the human breast milk from the Louisiana mothers, but when they tested it, no fatty streaks when they consumed human breast milk. But they did have the fatty streaks consuming cow's milk. But Bruce Taylor explained that. Why is it that the cholesterol in that human breast milk was not damaging to the infants? It was actually directly gotten from the nipple, not exposed to the air, and not oxidized. So the best way for you to drink your cow's milk? <laughs> Go down to the barn and get it straight.
So, actually, you might end up with a TBI that way, so you might want to be, be cautionary, a traumatic brain injury. Uh, Antioxidants, also helpful in both generalized anxiety and depression. It was observed that patients with generalized anxiety disorder and depression had significantly lower blood levels of antioxidants in comparison to healthy controls. After dietary supplementation of these vitamins, the antioxidants are A, C, and E, a significant reduction in anxiety and depression scores of patients was observed, and it was very statistically significant. Another advantage of a plant-based diet. The issue is the power of whole plant foods actually exceeds that of their component parts. One cup of kale has 50 milligrams of vitamin C and 13 units of vitamin E, for instance, which is a great vegetable. But the antioxidant potential of that one cup of kale is equal to 800 milligrams of vitamin C and 1,100 units of vitamin E. And so far better then taking those vitamins in vitamin pill form is to do what? Is to eat your kale. And not far away from here, the Human Nutrition Laboratory in Baltimore, Maryland, recently looked at the top 10 antioxidant vegetables. Number 10, eggplant. Number nine, corn. Number eight, onion. Number seven, red bell pepper. Number six, it's a humble fruit, but it is loaded with antioxidants, beets. Number five, broccoli. Number four, Brussels sprouts. And if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you have to come to the Weimar New Start cafeteria, because those that think they hate Brussels sprouts find out they like them at Weimar and the way they are cooked. Very delicious. Number three, spinach. Number two, there it is, kale. What's the number one antioxidant? Vegetable? Somebody said it. Garlic. It's the advantage of being married to a Romanian. Every entree starts out with four cloves of garlic. Then uh, they also looked at the top 10 antioxidant fruits. Number 10, grapefruit. Number nine, kiwi. Eight, cherries. Seven, red grapes. Six, oranges. Number five, plums. It's a humble fruit, but it's up there in the top five. Number four, raspberries. Number three, strawberries. Number two, Blackberries, having those anthocyanins, which are very high in antioxidants. And number one, blueberries, the number one antioxidant uh, fruit. Then Dr. Beeshold showed that when you switch to a plant-based diet in just two weeks, if you do nothing else, your depression and anxiety scores will drop by half. And uh, this is why it's important for people to stay on the diet at Weimar after 10 days, because in two weeks, they're going to have even a better response. And they thought it was due to negligible arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is present in eggs and in meat and in fish, and it adds to inflammation. It's a pro-inflammatory mediator, and depression and anxiety is often due to inflammation of the brain. 
Then we have found out in seven randomized controlled trials the benefits of the red part of this flower. It's called saffron. That's right. 30 milligrams daily equivalent to Prozac in improving depression scales. That SSRI, but no sexual side effects with saffron, unlike with Prozac. It also improves PMS. Even smelling it helps. And a recent study showed it worked as well as the leading drug, which is donazepil or Aricept in treating Alzheimer's without the side effects of that drug. It seems to inhibit the amyloid beta protein development as well. And then Selexan, which is a molecule that's concentrated from lavender oil. 80 milligrams daily shows relief of generalized anxiety disorder in 76%. Uh, far better than placebo, and it also improves the sleep quality even though it doesn't produce sedation. It's not a sedative. It's actually been utilized for test anxiety. And, for instance, if you take the leading anti-anxiety drug, which is lorazepam, before you take a test, you'll feel better about your test, but you'll do far worse because lorazepam suppresses the frontal lobe of the brain. But when you take Selexon, You'll feel better about it, and you'll do far better because your anxiety is alleviated and you'll be able to utilize your frontal lobe uh, better. Six-week trials showed improvement in anxiolytic effect comparable to lorazepam, and since lavender oil showed no sedative effects in our study, has no potential for drug abuse, Selexon appears to be an effective, well-tolerated alternative to benzos for amelioration of generalized anxiety. Then folate and B12, we measure these things as well. And the common mediator of these is, if we don't have enough, is reduced SAMe. S-adenosyl methionine helps us to provide that final methyl group that makes three neurotransmitters, dopamine, 5-hydroxytryptamine, and norepinephrine. And some people actually genetically are short in their ability to make SAMe. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And then, of course, if you're going to miss any meal of the day, it should not be breakfast. Studies show breakfast is important. It's so important that our work in mental health, my wife uh, came out with a cookbook, Brighten Up Breakfast, and uh, has all of the nutrients that you need in, uh, at breakfast time. Better cognitive performance, better scholastic scores, better learning, better memory, improved creativity. And when you skip breakfast, you increase your risk of depression. Breakfast eaters have more positive mood, perform better on spatial orientation tests, and feel calmer at the end of testing. And then I should mention a couple, we'll just mention a couple of common genetic issues that we might find. We measure people's genetics and also what we call epigenetics. Epigenetics is where we not only can see the mutated gene, but we can see if that mutated gene is having effects. For instance, one of the mutated genes is MTHFR deficiency. We might find the gene, but it's having no effects. You're methylating fine because you're heterozygous, or you may not be methylating fine. And so we're looking at the actual effects where we can see what the serotonin activity is in the brain through looking at these methylation pathways. And a lot of people, in fact, I just got a a call from one of our new employees on Friday that was saying, I want Dr. Nedley to measure my serotonin level. 
your serotonin level in your bloodstream has nothing to do with your serotonin level in your brain because of that blood-brain barrier. And so, but we can see what your serotonin activity is by looking at the epigenetic aspect of things. And there tends to be certain personalities that have the gene. The most common gene we see in 38% of our patients that come to our program is what we call undermethylation. They'll tend to have decreased ability to make both serotonin and dopamine. And um, they tend to come with a personality. They tend to be more strong-willed. They tend to be more controlling, tendencies for obsessions. They also tend to be high achievers. They tend to be uh, competitive. If they're in school, they're going to make an A. So they don't have a motivation issue as much. And they also, if they're in sports, this is the pitcher that's going to stare the batter down and take, do what it takes to strike them out. Uh, they also tend to have more addictive personalities. When things happen, they have a tendency to ruminate and think about it over and over and they're most characterized by someone who looks like they have it all together when the, you first meet them. It looks like a calm exterior, but inside it's tense. It's a tense interior. And with these individuals, they might need a supplement such as S-adenosylmethionine or saffron. And actually, uh, because of our uh, use of this, those two are actually about the two most expensive supplements you can get. Sammy and Saffron, because they've been well studied in the scientific literature and they're highly effective uh, for this group. Um, and finally, um, because of their expense, we ended up putting them together in one supplement for our undermethylators called Mood Balance. It's best taken on an empty stomach in the morning. And uh, this is actually less expensive than what you can find Sammy by itself or Saffron by itself. So it really made it affordable for our patients. You can also have overmethylation. These are people that'll have different personalities. They tend to be more naturally empathetic. You like to move into someone who's an overmethylator because they'll check on you and they want to make sure you're doing okay and they'll be very willing to help you. These people tend to be more creative, uh, more musical, but there is a tendency for anxiety, sleep disorders, high labile anxiety, and can also have temper issues and they have higher sensitivities to food and chemicals. They might think they're allergic to all sorts of things, but the issue is overmethylation. These people, if they're put on an SSRI, they're going to get far worse because they already have serotonin activity. That's why they are empathetic. And so these individuals need different types of treatment. And folic acid in particular is helpful in larger amounts because it's a serotonin reuptake promoter and the B12 called hydroxycobalamin can also be helpful. And then also one that the pharmaceutical industry has an enigma in treating is a common condition that's not looked at very much called a metal metabolism disorder. These are individuals that genetically are not able to handle metals well. They might have a very low ceruloplasmin. And as a result, the copper that comes in, since they're not able to bind onto it, becomes free copper. And when they have too much copper in their system, the tyrosine will be pushed over into norepinephrine and away from dopamine. So you get this imbalance. Too much norepinephrine, which is kind of like having adrenaline on board, and not enough dopamine. And so when you put a patient on an SNRI, you're going to get an increase in both, 
which is actually going to have some benefits and some worsening in risks. Uh, and so uh, the solution to this is actually getting rid of the copper. So these are symptoms that tend to go along with this, particularly hormonal depression in women, those with postpartum depression, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, this is often the case. And uh, men will have anger, anxiety, migraines, often this can be the source of migraines, and uh, even some paranoia can result from this. And so we have to get rid of the excess copper by giving zinc. Uh, zinc, along with those three B vitamins, B6, P5, P, and biotin, can help you bind onto it better. But we have to increase the treatment slowly because if we give the amount of zinc, the average person's going to need 100 milligrams of zinc a day to control this problem. If we give them that right off the bat, the copper goes down too quickly and they'll have a little bit of a tremor. So we have to build it up every week. They go to a higher dose until they're about on 100 milligrams a day. And what a difference it could make. Of course, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I know you might need to be up at 5 in the morning, so we need to uh, wrap this up. But I'll uh, close with Lancet Psychiatry. It's a British um, journal that is one of the uh, most prestigious psychiatric journals that did a review back even a few years ago, and notice what they said after this review. Now is the time for the recognition of the importance of what? Nutrition and nutrient supplementation in psychiatry. Nutritional medicine should now be considered as a what? Mainstream element of psychiatric practice. And then the French philosopher Denis Diderot will close with his saying, doctors are always working to preserve our health and cooks to destroy it. <laughs> but the latter are often the more successful. It doesn't have to be that way if we retrain the cooks. If we can retrain the cooks to make healthy food that's also tasty, why would we ever want to go back to the other way? And so uh, it's important in regards to what we are putting into our body and doing with our body. Now, I know it was mentioned that I would take some questions and answers, so I don't want to disappoint you, but I also want to respect the time. Maybe we can do about 10 minutes of that. Uh, Max, and I'll have opportunity tomorrow as well because I'll be here to do more questions. So, uh, question there, yes. 5-HTP, do you recommend that supplement? Or is it yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's often better to exercise and get it from the food with the carbs, but 5-HTP, you actually do get some crossage across the blood-brain barrier. And so it can, you can have a positive effect. We sometimes use that in the evening. If we are going to use it, we'll tend to use it in the evening. Uh, and uh, we can get some crossage uh, across the blood-brain barrier. Yes? How quickly from waking up do you eat breakfast? How quickly from waking up do you eat breakfast? Okay. So I'll just tell you what we do in our program, and it's based on an ideal setting. The first thing we do at 5.30 a.m. is expose them to blue light. This is light from the blue sky because it's going to set their circadian rhythm and help their serotonin production. You remember I mentioned light as part of the ingredients for adequate serotonin. And so, and then they'll do their devotions during that time when they're getting their light. And we'll do that for 30 minutes and then we exercise them 
And we, I mentioned how important exercise is. We're exercising them to promote their fitness. So this is going to be where their most vigorous exercise. They might even exercise to exhaustion pre-breakfast, and it's based on good science that shows if we exercise to exhaustion pre-breakfast, we'll build up a far better resilience cognitively, and we'll actually have a neurotransmitter reserve once we do eat a healthy breakfast. So we'll put them on an hour of exercise, and then we, we have them eat at 7 a.m. that healthy breakfast. So that's a good pattern to be on overall. Light, devotions, uh, exercise, and then your breakfast. And uh, that's, a, that's a great start to the day. By the way, uh, at the time when they're getting devotions or right beforehand, it's good to get hydrated. So that's when you want to get your water uh, in as well as actually pre-breakfast. Yes, question here. Okay. So, yeah, the question is about gluten. Um, a lot of people report feeling better uh, without gluten. And that can be actually due to what's coming with the gluten. Uh, there is some common pesticides that are used in the wheat industry um, that are often there. And we have noticed that when people go to organic wheat, if they don't have celiac disease, if they have celiac disease, gluten's going to be a problem. But if they don't have celiac disease, often switching over to organic um, wheat will get rid of the issues that they thought was connected to the gluten. Uh, but having said that, if you go to organic wheat and you still feel that way, fortunately you can still get your tryptophan from other sources. So you don't have to have wheat in order to have mental health. But all of the studies that look at it show that whole wheat, by the way, refined wheat, it's actually better not to eat it. <laughs> Re refined wheat is actually not positive for mental health. You've taken a lot of the iron away, the vitamin, uh, uh, the omega-3 is completely gone. Uh, when you take that wheat germ out. And so a lot of the benefits of wheat, uh, if not virtually all of them, you're eliminating when you go the refined wheat uh, process. But whole wheat actually, uh, in controlled trials, shows significant improvement in, in mental health for those that don't have sensitivities to it. All right, uh, any other question? Yes, I see a microphone back here. Yes, um, can season is like affect our, the brain chemistry like... Um Mushroom seasoning, powder, like onion powder, this type of things. Okay. What about uh, seasonings, you know, even uh, black pepper or the hot spices? Those loosen the tight junctions, and they allow larger molecule foods to cross. This is why their connection between autoimmune uh, disease and, um, and spices uh, for instance, or anything else that's going to loosen the tight junction, like alcohol, will also um, loosen that. Uh, we have a center close to us that works extensively with nutrition and autoimmune disease called True North. They take everyone off of spices and alcohol and all of that uh, because of that. Um, and so, but it's not necessarily going to, you know, adversely affect your tryptophan or tyrosine uptake from the gut. A part of things, but there might be additional reasons why we would want to 
avoid those spices because of the loosening of the tight junctions. All right, yes, question uh, up here, or uh, do we have another microphone? If we had another microphone, I would do it over here, but I'll go ahead since you're, you're right here in the front, and then I'll get, go ahead, and then I... Okay, so right up here, let's, uh, let's go ahead, right, right here. Now, I wanted to ask, um, what effects can become of coming off psychotropic drugs too rapidly and how long can they interfere? In no, that's a, that's a good question and I'm glad um, you asked that so I can clarify from things earlier. I told you about our gentleman that got off a lot of stuff and he got by with it. But we don't recommend you do this at home. <laughs> uh, the, the antidepressant um, drugs, you know, a lot of times some people might hear a lecture like this and just immediately get off of them before they've actually changed their diet or other lifestyle factors, and they're going to crash and burn, uh, so to speak, and do worse because they already have a shortage of serotonin. Now they don't have that blockage in the reuptake channels, and so their serotonin activity can be depleted even that much more. Uh, and so this is why people sometimes think they have a Prozac deficiency because every time they try to get off it, they crash even worse, even though they don't feel great on it. So the first thing we have to do is to correct the primary defects. So before I'm taking people off of the antidepressants, we're finding out what the defects are and we're working with that. And we normally give that at least a couple of weeks before we start weaning the antidepressants. And in most cases, those antidepressants have to be weaned depending on what they are. There's one of them that can be stopped abruptly without any withdrawal. It's called Welbutrin or Bupropion once we have the dopamine issue fixed. Uh, but the other ones require some titration and some working. And sometimes your family doctor is not going to know how to take you off of it. They'll know how to put you on it. They don't know how to take you off it. You're more likely to find your psychiatrist more knowledgeable on how to take you off of it. Uh, and sometimes they are not as knowledgeable as we'd like them to be. But the issue is we want to correct the issues the, the best we can before we start the withdrawal process unless we feel that the drug is producing no benefit and only risks. And sometimes after we review this list of four or five medicines, we'll realize two of these are only causing problems. They're not producing any benefit, so let's stop those two immediately and then we can work on the others. So you really want to work with your health professional uh, in, uh, in stopping these medicines and uh, in really getting someone um, that's going to help you through that process without you actually getting worse. Most people, once we correct the primary defect, they'll actually feel better off the psychotropics than they ever did on them. And that's a good sign that things are working in the right direction because those psychotropics do have some unwanted side effects. And once you get all those positive effects and you wean it off appropriately, it's a win-win all the way. Thanks for that question. We will resume uh, tomorrow and uh, come with your questions tomorrow. We'll be glad to answer more. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.